health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own number one living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The number one living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland and Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. Welcome back to I Am and thanks so much for joining me. As you may already know, on this podcast, we're all about human potential. My guest this week, Dr. Joe Cambray, well, he's a scientist who's been extensively researching human potential for decades. Loads of stuff around the workings of the mind, the process of psychological intervention, and so much more too. My name's Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Dr. Joe Cambray. Dr. Joe Cambray, thank you so much for joining me on the I Am Podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Johnny. It's really a pleasure to meet you. Brilliant. I'm really excited about this. And uh, I've got lots and lots I want to throw you away, see what uh, comes back and see what uh, where you are with, with everything. The podcast is around human potential. And I would love to get you, if you can, just to give a really brief roundup of what it is that you do and what angle you come at or what you do. What's your passion? What's your speciality? Yeah. Well, I've had two careers. First, I trained as a scientist. I did quantum mechanics applied to small chemical systems. Mm -hmm. And then I switched over and became a psychologist and then a Jungian analyst. And the sort of the life's work has been to combine those careers. And where that intersection happened was around complexity theory. This was uh, emerging in the late 1980s. It was around high-speed computing, and it, it allowed us to model things we'd never seen before. And we began to see that things were interconnected in a way unbeknownst before, and that has only expanded. It's really the kind of uh, approach to the 21st century thought, I think. I'm now realizing just how unfair the idea of a brief summary of your life's work was <laughs> because, I mean, that's, that's incredible. There's a huge amount there. And the reason uh, I want to get straight into it is that I want to hear with all of the things you're talking about, what does potential mean to you? And has that changed with everything you've been researching and investigating? Absolutely. Yeah. What's happening is we're really understanding the deeper interconnections of things. What it means to be human is, for me, radically changing. I mean, you know, we started with conscious and unconscious minds. That was a kind of evolution from the late 19th century. And exploring what those different realms held was much of the last century. And what we're now seeing is that the mind itself is much more ecologically based. It's not ensculled inside of us. We have that appearance that we, as a first order kind of sense of self, it's I'm me inside of this body. But in fact, when we really look at the way that people's psyches interact with one another, we can see that the connections are much more like a, a field of interaction. And in fact, some of the work that's actually been done on forests and trees and the interconnected rhizomatic structures under the ground have shown us just how profoundly interconnected all kinds of beings are. And it's evolving towards a model that the universe itself may be intimately interconnected at its deepest levels. So in terms of potential and how we look at that, I'm very, very aware in my early stages of my life and even kind of middle stages of, of what I've lived so far, potential for me was hugely based on the idea of I'm inside this body and to realize my immensity, I have to expand this body. I need to go and accumulate stuff. I need to grab more material, add it to me. And of course, it feels to me a little bit like that's not uncommon, hence why we're running out of resources and we're finding ourselves in conflict with each other, stealing from each other in a competitive way. You know, like we are in that competition survival of the fittest space. And yet 
there seems to be so much more opportunity there, yet there's still that desire to expand. It seems innate that we have this desire to kind of find that reach where it goes and to continue to explore it. But it seems there's so much more there when we look beyond that physical side. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about is the kind of dominant patterns about how we identify with what is identity within a contemporary culture. And if it's about acquisition and the accumulation of wealth, then it takes us in a particular place. And it's from a Jungian perspective, I talk about it being founded on the archetype of the hero, (laughs) The, the individual who is going to be able to win the prize and, you know, capture all the goods. And that's a myth that's gotten us now into a kind of a cul-de-sac. And I think ecologically, it's causing us to be in a state of disaster and and that we can't continue to live that way. So we have to, in some way, work on our our larger collective identity. You mentioned the archetype there about the hero. I know I had a few that were much more prevalent in me early and probably still there and doing their thing. But the hero was, was one, the savior type of idea, the warrior you know, always having that, that, I guess, immense sort of foe to fight and take on, needing that and that savior idea behind it. And the martyr almost as well, you know, that comes a lot from a certain kind of understanding of religion. Yes. It, it seems like all of those lead to a similar sort of path. This cul-de-sac you're sort of mentioning, maybe they all gather in that same space and kind of realize <laughs> this is where we all ended up. Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, it worked for centuries in terms of Western culture. It made it the apex predator of the planet. And there was a lot of rewards at a sociopolitical level for doing that. The problem is, is that it has reached its high point and it's turning. It's turning on itself. And therefore, how do we restructure ourselves and our minds and our societies? It's not a a question with a simple answer, obviously. But I think that raising the questions that you're raising are really essential. That is, can we do a pause here and stop? And can we understand the way things are really interrelated so that my heroism then can actually cause a lot of other misery in the system? That it's coming back to me in a way. You know, take the COVID-19 situation that we're all in. There's very good evidence that that's really being driven by global warming which is something we're all contributing to. The the idea there is, this is from the Chan Center at Harvard. What they were doing was saying, okay, where did this virus come from? It's not engineered in a lab. It's not coming from some lab in Wuhan. What What it's coming from are, as the planet heats up, species that are living in tropical areas are overheating. And so they're seeking relief from the excess heat. And so they move to higher latitudes. What happens then is that puts them into contact with migrating species that never migrated all the way down to the tropics. And so what we've got now are opportunistic trans species jumping for for viruses. And then those migrating species bring them back into northern latitudes or southern latitudes and into human populations. And so when you look systemically at the entire picture, you can see that the human component to driving up, you know, greenhouse gases and so forth is causing the pandemic. And you can see very quickly that this is not going to be a once in a century kind of phenomenon. That's what it had been before. But now we're driving the biosphere in ways that I think this is the first of many. I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but I, I think you know, we're, we're creating the kind of conditions for these kind of changes to happen. And the changes that perhaps are too intricate to, I mean, I'm sure we can have certain formula for understanding what may happen in the future of this, but some of these are difficult to predict as we're into, we're entering into new space and also species, as I know a lot of you work around that kind of the evolution of the emergent forms of things when things sort of interrelate and interreact and what comes out of it. You can't work those out necessarily from saying, okay, this species has these properties, these species has these properties, bring them together, you'll get this. Actually, what comes out of that relationship is something that is almost not really apparent to either. That's right. What you're talking about are emergent properties. And you have things interacting in a competitive environment, and they produce something, a whole holistic form that's greater than the sum of the parts goes all the way back to Aristotle, this kind of thinking. But we've now got ways to to look at that. And you're absolutely correct. This is not 
easy to predict. You can't just look at the parts and say, okay, this will then therefore create this emergent form. It's spontaneous. It self-organizes. It's not under direction so that, you know, you, you get these forms. A simple example, glass of water. Water shouldn't be liquid at room temperature. If you study the quantum mechanics of water, you take a single molecule of water, you'd expect it to be a gas at room temperature. Hydrogen sulfide, same molecular structure, just with sulfur, which is heavier than oxygen, and you got a gas. Why? Well, it's the interactions between the molecules. It's the hydrogen bonding from one molecule to the next that creates the liquidity of water. It's an emergent property of the system. Which breaks the rules in a way completely and defies that. And I think that's really interesting to me in that when you think about potential as human beings, we try to see potentials through logical intellectual minds to say that, okay, but this is what potential is according to this intellectual structure. And yet in a way that's almost completely negating the concept of potential. And then for when a lot of what we hear, which I'm sure we'll get to, is that state of allowing and receptivity, which almost kind of creates this paradox of wanting to know potential or talk about potential actually ends up leaving you just in the way of it. In terms of connecting with emergent forms, I find that the ability to tolerate uncertainty is absolutely key. I need great curiosity. And the way, you know, I've asked the question clinically, how do you detect when something's emergent? And the best single tool is through the use of the emotions. It's particularly the emotion of surprise. Huh. What do you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's, do you know, that's interesting because one thing I find with potential or, or maybe another better word for it is creativity is that we're all creating all the time. But why do people say some people they're in a creative space because it feels like they're going new. They're operating outside of their boundaries of the logic or intellectual structure. And that's that surprise. And I think how much surprise do you have in your life? And I think maybe we're falling into a space where we're becoming less and less surprised, a lot very angered, which I guess in its own way is kind of, it should be a surprise. That's why you get angry. But actually most of it's not. We're predicting and getting quite good at predicting, but are we in fact actually creating a lack of surprise by staying within those structures? Oh, I think that's the safety really reduces the creativity. I mean, from again, from this perspective, if you look and the studies have been on how did life begin the origins of life, because that's an, that's a pretty big innovation. If you want to think of that <laughs> in that way, the question is, you know, we know so much about the structure of even an individual cell uh, and we can reproduce a lot of things, but we've never reproduced life. There's something missing there. And when you start to model that from this perspective, what you find are the best solutions towards the emergence of life are it's occurring at the edge of order and chaos. That's really in a fundamental place. And that's where creativity, I would, I would redefine that as creativity occurs at all levels of the world, human and biological and even physical, that creativity occurs at the edge of order and chaos. You've got to be on that. And I don't think you can inhabit it as a permanent state, but I think you can dance around it. And when you get near it, then that allows the possibility for reorganization, self-organization and emergence. That's when you get something truly new that starts to come in. That's really interesting. I feel like if I I try and I'm almost there with something, but it's not quite going to fix. But that edge of order and chaos feels like that space of the conscious and the unconscious now where you sort of, you have your intention, but then you have your surrender. You have that relationship with the divine, whatever that means to you to actually hand over and then become part of it. You mentioned before about the apex predator survival of humans, but it seems as though we're moving into a time now where there is more safety. There isn't this kind of constant under attack side of us. So that survival mechanism we're still, I think, coming out of and not yet sort of able to relinquish it. And yet we're in a space where we're not fighting, not everyone and respect to all those that are in very different circumstances, but not as many of us really fighting for lives on a daily basis, although we're all challenged at these present times. It seems though the survival has then crept into a psychological survival. You know, your reputation, your planned future is under attack. 
and we're still surviving. Hence that energy and that, I guess, isolation and all those things that come with it. Instead of, you know, again, another fight for who lasts and who stays longest on the planet. What's the alternative and how are you seeing that in your research? You know, if we move towards altered states of consciousness, then that kind of core ego identity that you're talking about, that's very protective of the status quo, begins to open up. And, you know, it comes from multiple sources. Of course, in the U.S., in the last five years or so, there's been a renaissance in the use of psychoactive pharmacology to explore, you know, sort of psychological suffering. Michael Pollan's book on, you know, how minds change and so forth is kind of a key breakthrough. But it opens up a larger question about the, the kind of knowing we have in different states of mind. You know, if you look at what are called traditional civilizations, where they did have more day-to-day, at least risk in terms of the natural world, they weren't as acquisitive, uh, but they did have a lot more access to altered states or what we would call non-ordinary states of consciousness, whether it was through fasting or rituals or drumming or the use of, of chemicals and so forth, to enter altered states where they felt connected with their environment in a much deeper way, and they had a respect for it. Uh, one way to frame this is what you might call the re-enchantment of nature, that we live in a disenchanted age. That's This goes back to a man named Max Weber sociologist, 1917, during the First World War. He wrote a paper on science as vocation and said, we live in a disenchanted world. And, you know, that was the kind of price that we paid for our scientific, rational knowledge. And the question, and he was raising it, is this an endpoint or is it a cul-de-sac that we've gotten ourselves into. And so the question is, we can't just go backwards. That's not going to solve anything, and we can't live as as our ancestors lived. But how do we begin to break through the illusion of disenchantment and begin to enter into a world that's much richer and much more multi-layered? Certainly, you can get some touch with that with dreams as we enter into the kind of space of the dream world and begin to know the psychic entities that inhabit that. There's an expansion of consciousness that goes there along with some of these other things. And I think our acquisitiveness changes when we get into those kind of relationships. That would be the first step. It's really interesting. You mentioned just about the connection and with your environment, yet my mind immediately goes to perhaps the culture and society that I'm aware of. And the activities seem far more like an escape. Yet there is that sort of sense of, like you mentioned, the comfort. So the the rationalization, if you like, of what we're going through and what life must be from that deductive intellectual standpoint of what we see and how we work it out. And two plus two equals this. And okay, so this must mean this. I think it leads you towards that escape a little bit. You know, and the escape feels a bit like, oh, yeah, at least this is better than that. And yet that connection with the environment, it's boundless. And I, this is what I was saying a little bit about that potential from a physical standpoint is that initially when you're just starting with it, you can get some big gains in whatever you're doing. You want to improve at something and you improve a little bit and then quite short after it becomes smaller and then people start talking about the 1% gains and then basically you get older and you start having to accept that you can't go any further and then you're actually sort of trying to stop the opposite movement. But on a level of what we're talking about, there's none of these rules apply. I don't think there is no getting old and this is how it works. There is no how it works. And I think part of that potential for me is a moving, constantly moving, or at least with that inquisitiveness, there's a a lack of submission to whatever the reality feels like right now. It just leaves you sort of knowing that, you know, you can accept what is now, but knowing there's more, yet very few of us can relate to that idea of, oh, well, I've had that experience that shows me there's more. And so therefore we end up believing in it, which doesn't really, I'm not sure how much that does. Yeah. Yet there's also, when you mention dream worlds, I'm straight away like, ah, <laughs> we all have dreams. When you ask the question, but what's really happening in a dream world and why does it feel so real? I feel like there's an immediate touch point for people for inquisitiveness, but we pass these things off. We pass off some of, like you mentioned, the, the, some of the research in the, the way that um, various beings and, and living creatures and are interacting in a forest. This stuff, when you hear it, is mind-blowing. I don't know how you can go back to an old way of thinking when you hear 
something like this in action. But it, that dream world fascinates me, as does the findings in the forest and the way that it works. Is it easier to grasp, to go to that next level through these kind of things like a dream world? Yeah, are there explanations that can send us there pretty quickly? Yeah, there's several ways to formulate that. I mean, I can give some examples, but an area of, of interest in research has been what's called the adjacent possible. This comes from some of the work out of the Santa Fe Institute, Stuart Kaufman, but also picked up by people at the Sapienza University in Rome. And what they're looking at are, are novelty and innovation and how does it happen? And one of the things that they start to sh show that most of our innovation, true innovation, is through what's called the adjacent possible. So what is that? Think about a dream where you find a new room in your house. A very common dream theme. You know, it, it's like, oh, you discover something that you had that had been there, but you hadn't known it. And you go in there, and once you're in there, then there are other rooms there that may lead off from that, the adjacent possible. And this is actually a pathway for evolution, is via the adjacent possible. So that's there all the time. It's the virtual reality that's opening up. Just look at our conversation today on Zoom. You know, 10 years ago, this just wouldn't have happened. Platforms wouldn't have been stable. We wouldn't have been comfortable with this. Now we're in a situation where we're in two different realities simultaneously. You're in a different country at a different time of day, weather, <laughs> and yet here we are. And look, our backgrounds are different in terms of what's there. I, I run groups in China, so I've got 10 or 15 people scattered from various places throughout China with myself. They're in a different day than mine. I, all the background noise is very different than the background noise that's here. And it's all part of the psyche. I mean, if we were to look at it as a dream, the background is not inconsequential. It is part of the ecology of our psychic states. And so I think we're, in a way, training ourselves into a new reality here through the virtual. And I know there are a lot of shadow elements to that. I'm not Laudering it is, is a simple, uncomplex kind of reality. But this is a step into something else. The ability to have this kind of instantaneous dialogue and open up our minds to one another in a way that correspondence through letters was wonderful, but would not have caught the ability for spontaneity in the moment. And so I'd say that's an adjacent possible. Then there are also the far possibles. Leonardo da Vinci was good at that. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, you mentioned about that on the edge of order and chaos. Yes. And well, as you were talking there and you were talking about opening up to each other, first thing came to me was like the concept of sharing and then it was more the vulnerability. And that feels like that's that space, order and chaos. There is order. You're still there. You're here. You know, you know you're still here. You're still here and alive. But in that vulnerability space, you're giving in to something else that sends you somewhere where you either send yourself back into the known or you just allow. And that's really, really powerful. In, in terms of that dream world, you hear people saying things like, Chad, the strangest dream last night. Is it, yeah, the, one of the simple things you hear is that you're just exploring the, you know, the depths of your mind, you know, a bit like the, one of the things I find really interesting in terms of perhaps more of a, I don't know if it's a spiritual or perhaps just an open-minded look at the dream world as being, it's sort of reflective of the the awakened world in that you kind of say, well, when you dream, you fall asleep, you have a dreamed character that explores the inside of your mind. So then from a universal perspective, are we dreamed characters exploring the universal mind? It's quite an interesting theory of, re of reflecting that kind of our position as a co-creator is that we dream and create that own mini universe that reflects what might be happening as a collective but in terms of those weird dreams, are there times people say to you, I had this really weird dream and they talk about it and you're like, it's just a weird dream. It's just a strange. Or is there always a psychologically or psychoanalytic possibility there with every dream? I think the possibility is there. I don't think it's always so easy to realize it. You know, we go to our standard toolbox of symbolism and so forth, and that can be helpful. But the psyche isn't going to fit into our, our theoretical toolbox and, and just mirror what we want. You know, it yeah. becomes a Procrustean bed if we're not careful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I've had a lot of experiences with dreams that have, say, precognitive elements and so forth in them, that if it's the mind of the universe speaking, then it's a mind that transcends our ordinary notions of time and space. Yeah, that's huge. One of those we sort of had mentioned recently, I didn't really follow it up, but another one that brings a bit of the wow to 
to what might seem the mundane is the deja vu perspective. Yes. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit into any rationale apart from you end up saying, I must be wrong. But there's something there, which, as you said, precognitive, what it is, there's an absolute knowing, but then it positions you in a, immediately for me, it sits me in that space of how do I fit into this then anymore? I don't get it. You know, is this just unfolding without me? But do you look into things even as much as deja vu and, and as the dreaming state, are these things important in that area? Well, yes. I mean, I would put what you're talking about within that emergentist perspective, that when we have one of these remarkable coincidences or the feeling of deja vu, we're in a way picking up a pattern. We're recognizing we're in a pattern that's larger than ourselves, that suddenly we find ourselves in the face of something that we're inside of rather than inside of us. And I think that's part of the flip psychologically that we need to open ourselves up to is like, okay, I'm a participant in this. I'm not the creator of it. Maybe yeah. I co-create a little bit, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. So you also mentioned, and this maybe goes a bit with the deja vu, but a lot of things get spoken about synchronicity as well. Events seeming to come together. Now, I think we're very good at that retrospectively yeah. when you sort of, you, you find yourself in a great state and you look back on hard times and you sort of put it all together retrospectively. Oh, you know, it's amazing how all these things came together for me. But to be more real time in the moment, noticing, oh my gosh, you know, what's this? And to see that, how do you sort of position that? And how does that relate to our, as you mentioned, co-creating our intention, our desires? Is there a guidance involved and, and if so, you know, where do we think the guidance is coming from? And, and, you know, if there was guidance, why do some people see it? Why not others? Well, I think there's a certain amount of training and sensitivity that can be developed towards these patterns as they're starting to emerge. How do you recognize them? That's one of the reasons I was interested in the emotional responses, because I think that's one of the first alerts, the sense of, huh. I wasn't anticipating that. And just, you know, sort of a few examples to help capture this. I think by not expecting them to all be life-shattering, transformational moments, but there are subtle moments like this that happen all the time. And and electronic media are one of the places where I keep finding this, the breakdown <laughs> of it. So I'm running a group in, in another country, and somebody is presenting something, and there's a moment where their equipment breaks down. They go off, they log back on. And so we say, let's slow it down and take a look at it. Let's just see what happened there. And, and sure enough, there was something that was being omitted that the person felt some shame about. As they were able to reclaim the shame, it opens up the moment completely. And we see something that was there that was in the unconscious, that was part of what was being blocked psychologically and in a curiously synchronistic way, it shows up as a kind of a transformation in the electronic media. Uh, and I've got hundreds of examples of, of things like this. What exactly it is, where it comes from, I can only speculate. But th the fact is that it's something that it's not just my personal experience. There's a lot of other therapists that I've talked about. So beginning to recognize when those moments happen and depathologizing them, taking taking away the kind of shaming that might go on about that. I first started this with beginning to look at reverie, you know, one's own wool, seeming wool gathering in the middle of a therapy session, suddenly finding yourself a little bit distracted. Say when somebody's telling a dream and it's like suddenly, oh my God, it seems like I didn't pay attention and I'll overcoming the shame and saying, I found myself a bit distracted here. Can you tell me the details? And it began to, with increasing accuracy, to be, well, oh, there was something I forgot, or I left out something. In other ah, words, the yeah. distraction was really about something else that was trying to get through that wasn't having a, a voice. And so there are the way the unrepresentable elements in our psychic life show up in these elliptical ways. They come in sideways. And <laughs> if we start to say, rather than being ashamed of them and trying to suppress them, we invite them and say, okay, something just happened here. What just went yeah. on? <laughs> it's really um, interesting. It's a very different view to these kind of things, like you said, in school. You know, I'm not saying that necessarily reverie, but someone's staring out the window, you're kind of like, look, 
there's maybe where the shame is. You know, you, what are you looking at? Yeah. You know, you look here, concentrate, you can't focus. You're, you're never going to succeed in life with that kind of attitude. And you actually, what I'm finding in my work up here and that I coach, actually I coach in a sporting environment, having a ball in my hand is enormously, for some reason, when you feel like you just know where you're supposed to be, all my understandings mostly come about through having a ball in my hand. And that's just, there's a target, there's a goal. And that process of finding the energy that is required for that to succeed is no longer about forcing it and technique and A plus B plus C, and it will go in, keep practicing 10,000 hours later, you're better at it. It's about absolute sensitivity to the energy state and then finding an energy state which starts to just appear on the outside of you and realizing your work is within on that inner journey. And that process reveals everything for me so much. But mm -hmm. one part of that that's hugely important is being able to dream. Well, when I say dream, I don't mean the actual go to bed and dream, but I mean your reverie, being able to <laughs> daydream, to your imagination, to have a free imagination, to be able to see what you want to happen and be able also to follow your sidetracks when you're in that space of I'm dreaming what I want to happen, I feel great. And then I head off this direction and then just to allow that space and to create that sort of internal energy. One thing I find that's so difficult is that there seems to be so many rules that you need to get by that we now think belong to our imagination as well. And I think that for me is the biggest part. We, I do a drill where I'd say to someone, right, you're going to pretend to kick a ball, but without the ball. And, and it can be anything you want. And I say, why don't you kick me this one? And it goes 300 meters, which is an absurd amount of yeah. space. And so they go, I'll do that. And they, they run up and try and smash the ball. And I'm like, but it's your world. Why do you need to have to try so hard in your world? <laughs> All these things creep in. And of course, it brings them back to that sense of worth. I think that it's kind of like you can have whatever you want if you deem yourself to be worthy of it and deserving of it. But that imagination, that reverie, it's lovely to hear that it seems to me to be explorative, curious, but it's just one of those that because we're not involved in it, we're not directing it. We think it's, it's basically pointless. It seems like the capacity to play is something yeah. that we're losing. Yeah, play dates and everything else. I mean, the spontaneous play is so integral to development of the personality and to skills and, and to the free expression that if we don't know how to play, then it becomes mechanical. Yeah. And maybe that's, that's it, having conversations with people who are about to go into big matches and one of the biggest things I think mm. that can come to that sometimes difficult mindset is this isn't going to define you. You can still play with this, you know, and, and at what level do you say, I can't play with this? It's very, it's difficult and it's challenging, but it, that brings in for me anyway, at least the big question, you know, which is like, well, that sense of play, when you see it in a child, it maybe seems to be pre the moment of you find out this cultural concept of mortality the play is so vast but that sort of first apparent recognition of the alleged end when it's presented in such a sort of like a difficult way and it's difficult to understand it sort of almost interrupts that sense of play and getting that back i think is huge yes i would say that's part of the re-enchantment question yes. right there yeah you know i mean it's it's a very key thing i mean i love your description about what the ball activates at a, at a psychosomatic level for you. Yes. Body exactly. and mind are just, oof. Yeah, that's wonderful. Like you said, that it's amazing that you say, right, now just you be you. Live your dream world. Live it fully and realize that that is not just equally justified or valid compared to this apparent real world, but it's even more so. As soon as you put the ball in the hands, you see they revert. The ball holds the real yeah. world and it holds power. And suddenly, <laughs> as soon as you put it in the hands, you're like, why are you standing so differently to when you did in your real world? It's like, yeah. oh, because of the ball. It's like, but this is, yeah, you assert your energy over the ball and don't allow the apparent energy to serve you. It's really, really, really interesting. I feel like a lot of what we're talking about here is awareness. 
And one thing I really struggle with is, is there seems to be so much, and for me anyway, hugely in that you're not aware of it, you are aware of it. Within that expansion of awareness, it's just opportunity, it's possibility. Everything is possibility. But someone says, well, hold on, how do you feel you became more aware? I can give a brilliant story. It's not honest. It's not honest. The honest story is, the honest story is, I don't know. And I don't know if it happened in the past or whether it's happened now. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm different to how I was very, Mm -hmm. and I don't relate to how I was in terms of a continuation. And I don't know how it happened, but yet so much of this opportunity of evolution seems to be about how do you trigger awareness in someone else? And I'm not saying that I have any great Mm -hmm. depths of awareness, but I know that I have a constantly evolving perspective on life. It's always moving. And yeah, I know for a long time, I felt like if it was moving, it was moving in very small shifts. What does the science look at in terms of that awareness? Yeah, it's a question whether we're we're really this continuous being or whether we move through different states that are discontinuous, but maybe there's some interconnections between them. Yeah, I, I think that's extremely important. That we You can see this with dreaming. If you wake people up in the middle of the night when you see rapid eye movement, the REME, you know they're dreaming. The story you get there, what they've witnessed internally is very different than what they'll elaborate when they wake up in the morning. It's much more fragmentary. It's much more shards, pieces. And what you see is narrative smoothing. This is the way the human mind functions. We narratively smooth things to keep a coherent narrative about ourselves. That's part of how we define ourselves. I don't think the world is quite that nice and neat and tied up together. And what happens in in some of these moments where we're surprised that continuity breaks up a little bit? And maybe that's where awareness comes in, in the gaps and in the disruptions of the narrative. That we, we, for a moment, step outside of the narrative and realize, wait a minute, this is a construction. Am I seeing something else? I mean, uh, that's pretty exciting, actually. I think when we we recognize it can be challenging, but it's really pretty exciting to see, oh, maybe there's another way to to begin to look at what I'm I'm doing and how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, definitely. And I think with those shifts, I don't think it's possible to go back. It's almost like once you've seen it, once you know it, you can't unknow it. But it's not based on real world what you know. It's just that once I feel myself to be expanded somehow, I can't go back to thinking I'm just this thing within a body who's doing their best to get through, you know, to this or whatever else and then hang in there and then it's all over. It's it's like there's something else there. And because of a lot of the potential we speak about, there's two probably bits I, w- I want to sort of explore here. The first bit, the potential we talk about speaking to people who have had those very expansive experiences of life. It's always spoken about as a realization, not in terms of a manifestation, but a a recognition and a remembering. And I'm really interested in this because it's always pointing towards this idea that there is nowhere to go to find it, nothing to earn to find it, nothing you need to do to find it. It is always here. And I heard recently in something you were talking about, about recognizing a deeper intelligence beyond the conscious that belongs to the body itself Mm. in terms of the cells, each cell having its own intelligence. It also had me thinking about how we create this idea of who we are and almost that same boundary surrounds our memory. And yet when we expand who we are, we actually end up remembering more of what we're capable of if you like, that this constant idea of opening up awareness to suddenly realizing that you mentioned sensitivity and awareness to tapping into this intelligence that we might call a higher intelligence, but actually might also belong to our our biology. Yes. It may be part of the emergent possibilities that are there within all of us. And I would say the emergence is not only in our cellular memory, but in our engagement with the environment. Yes. You know, if you look at things like instincts, they only really truly discharge when the environmental conditions match what the instinct is meant to do. In other words, it, we're always embedded. 
yeah. in something larger. And it's really valuable to, to begin to recognize that embeddedness as, as part of our thought, that it's not separate from. Are we remembering or is the world around us remembering? I mean, where is memory located? And what's its function? You know, there's memory researchers who are saying the point of human memory is not about remembering the past. It's being able prospectively to help us look towards the future. Yeah. The memory is really connected not forward, not backwards. Yeah. And this is that time-space break as well, where we think everything is linear. And, and I think some of the issues people have, especially I, I would have had and still do it around the idea about trying to live in the now, is you think it's like a kind of a train on a track that's already on the move and you're having to sprint alongside it. It's going from the past to the future and you're trying to run along and find that perfect tempo of the now. But it's just effort. And effort is actually the opposite of the now. And to understand that maybe if you remove this idea of, you know, as, as we've had people talking about, you know, when have you ever experienced a past? I haven't. So what have you got? You've got memory now. So distinguish a little bit between past and memory. It's helping you come to the now. But I was certainly someone was all, I've had a past. This is my story and I'm moving towards my future. And, you know, staying in the now is difficult because the past is always determining my future and I'm dealing with that. And it feels like even just in talking about what you're talking about there, that relationship with the environment and that sensitivity and that openness that's already offering to me such a big motivational sort of carrot, if you like, of just saying, how do I open? Mm-hmm. How do I open? I want that intelligence, the one that isn't difficult to articulate and probably you can never tell anyone about because you never really, you, when you experience it, you know it's not really going to serve anything to tell anyone about, but it's your deep experience of guidance, of being cared for, loved, realising your oneness mm-hmm. or whatever. I sort of follow a few spiritual gurus, some of them reported uh, enlightened beings. And you see them with the hand on a tree sort of saying, you know, they're recognizing that beauty of nature. And it feels like you see it through those intellectual eyes and you think, no, really? That must be amazing what it must feel like. So you go out in the garden, you put your hand on a tree and you're telling yourself, I can't feel anything. (laughs) I can feel bark (laughs) and I can feel this. And you want to feel something with the work you're doing does it involve you seeing transformations in people and in life experience and if so what does that mean for you when you're seeing these things and are you yourself like you've mentioned becoming more open and curious to what you're seeing is it changing your world your life i certainly have that impression that's my at least my illusion that that's the case but i think what part of what the way i would frame what you're saying is you know when we go out there and try to grasp the tree as we see some enlightened master grasp it uh, the the difference is that we don't have a porous enough ego you know in other words we're still locked in a particular narrative we want a particular kind of experience that we are bringing to it rather than really allowing this kind of increased you know sort of flow between states of mind and i think what's happening might be about being able to open up to these less sort of individualized states of mind and feeling these sense of greater connections certainly if you look at traditional societies this is what the shamans do whether it's through chanting, drumming, drugs, or whatever. It's entering into states that are less localized. They, you know, it'll be framed within metaphors of travel and so forth. But I think what, from a psychological, contemporary psychological view, it's a kind of opening up so that subjective and objective are not so sharply separated out. Our ego consciousness is very good at being objective and separating our inner world from our outer world. Well, once you do that, you can't have these experiences. That, that's the price of it for, for that. So it's, it's a sacrifice of something about that ego state. And I think, Curiously, it's it's working with one's emotions that begin to loosen it up, at least for me. That's why, you know, the reverie states and overcoming the shame of being distracted from an ego perspective and allowing the distraction to have meaning and guide and lead. You know, it's like what you shouldn't be paying attention to is actually guiding you to something of, of greater value. So it's yeah. really a re-education in a lot of ways, I think. I, I think that's the same as when you're listening to someone, you're talking to someone you're all on the words and you tune out all the beautiful subtlety that's there. 
and you think, well, subtlety, the next level of subtlety might be the facial expression, the hunched shoulders, you know, the tension in the body, the body posture. What am I seeing there? It might be some of the other sort of physical, but then you go deeper and you're into a, an energy transfer of being able to say, you know, which we all have sometimes. You say, look, are you okay? Mm. You know, there's just something about you, know, just feeling, you know, and, you, and tuning into that, I feel the movement into the subtle means, I think for me, in terms of that, we're speaking about earlier about that match the energies that you too have to become subtle. Yes. You can't stay as you are and start saying, I wouldn't mind, you know, picking up some of these deeper levels, <laughs> deeper dimensions of life, but I'll be fine as I am. Thanks. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'll be me as I am. I want to survive through unchallenged. So I think that humiliation effect of challenge of, you know, the vulnerability of, of feeling those things of the emotions, but sitting with them and a, sort of like you say, staying on that border of chaos and order when it all is a bit all over the place, but saying there's something here, it's not a place to run from as long as it doesn't involve a lion coming out the bushes, you know, which it would have done. It's in that space there. And, and it's not something that we're yet to push forward within society. It's almost like, we, and even as parents, you know, your child starts crying before you know it, you're saying, Oh, it's okay. What's the matter? You're trying to stop that emotion because maybe that's, you know, you just want the best for everyone, but wanting the best means that you're, you're never upset. You're never challenged. You never have to deal with anything. You get everything you want. You're like, well, this is probably the root of the problem. So, so one of the things I find really interesting, I'm interested to see what you think about this and how it works with the model of, of everything you're talking about is this concept we've heard about, about getting out of your own way, which brings about this idea of there being no real ownership or credit for your life. And the deja vu thing kind of brought this up a bit for me, mm-hmm. as does when you say those kind of the removal of the ego is the credit, is the ownership. And I feel this connects a bit to the past with the people's relationship with the divine and the blessing for everything they have and are experiencing and for who they are. It feels powerful to me for this idea that this allowing, not because, oh, I should allow, but because it's not even mine. And I'm a portal for it. I'm here to just breathe it and experience it and live it and love it. And this I find in terms of that synchronicity, yeah, the the noetic part, just the altered states. I feel like for me, there's something in that releasing that hold on this is my gift. I'm good at this. I just thought of this, all of this ownership instead of, I love it when I speak to people on these podcasts and a lot of them sort of say things like, well, this just came up in me. Very different to, well, something I like to think about a lot is, you know, it's kind of, it's very spontaneous. What does that sort of bring up in you hearing that? Yeah, I mean, this is the question of the illusion of ownership, even of the body or even of the mind. I mean, do we really think our thoughts or are we the more that we, you know, it's, I I don't think we create them. I think we discover them (laughs) by and large, you know, and and then there's a question, well, you know, of thought without a thinker. It's really a question of how do we relate to the thought forming capacity and is it even something, you know, sort of ensculled or embodied or is it again part of the, the world that we're in it thinks yeah you know yes. if you look at the largest scale pictures of the universe the, you know these threads of galaxies separated by you know sort of dark energy where where you've got this sort of gaps that structure is highly rhizomal it looks like a bamboo plant underground there's there, there's real close analogies people have actually done some close calculations of that what that means the the brain is rhizomal in its fundamental structure the the neuronal contacts and that morphology that shape persists from the most microscopic through the organic and human and mental states to the, the largest scales of the universe it gives me pause that consciousness is more the fundamental background than than the personal property of any of us and that we're in that connection with consciousness. I love the idea of the universe thinking and that we ourselves sort of channel in a way our own version of that. And for for me, it's very interesting that I think during the COVID situation, I think that the energy or the whatever it was, the thoughts of the universe, I think there was a lot of anxiety and panic and stress and fear within that environment. And I think people are 
receiving it and channeling it or receiving it according to their sensitivity and channeling it according to the belief structures. And it came out of me in a very strange way, in a way that was hugely challenging and brought up a lot of old things that were mine to sort of then process and to release. But it, it just completely no warning on the back of feeling so great and all of a sudden just what's happening? What's happening to me? And I think these are such interesting understandings, alternative understandings for other things such as, oh, you know, don't worry, it's just having a bad time and you just need to do this and, you know, you need to think more positively and what have you. But it's like, but there's power in that. There's worth and value in sort of being like, I'm picking up something from the universe. And I feel it's really interesting to think that when you sort of receive that and through yourself, you kind of channel it and see the, the beauty. And it's almost like you have a part in the way that the universe is evolving as well and the you're changing the energy a little bit, albeit, yeah, you're not doing it yourself, but you're part of that movement. You're also, we can also be part of continuing that fear, you know, and turning it into conflict and whatever. And I, and I think maybe as has been stated, you know, it's, it's a time of great, great fear and conflict at the moment. And we have an opportunity of how we play with that. But I think we're all receiving it in a certain way. I love the idea of the universe thinking, and someone else also said, allow yourself to be thought allow yourself hmm. to be felt. Yeah. I thought that was, yeah, that fits just in with that beautifully. And so, so finally, just on the idea of potential for me has always been, it's a something. I turn possibility into a something, into an achievement, mm -hmm. into a trophy, into a goal. And that's realizing potential. I'm much more interested in the other expression of realizing potential and the recognition now in that, that sense of possibility, that openness, that, as you mentioned, the dissolving of the ego almost to create that kind of oneness, that realization as opposed to the manifestation, although the two do seem to work quite nicely hand in hand. What, what's coming up in the future of your research and curiosity? Where do you think the direction of your work's going? Well, certainly one of the areas that I've begun to be enrolled in and I'm extending it is, is the, the use of the imagination in terms of knowing the world. And what I mean, I'll give you, I gave you one example. You only had this idea of a psychoid imagination or a psychoid uh, level of an archetype. That is that when you go far enough, deep enough down, what seems like matter has psychological properties and, uh, and psychological things seem to behave a little materially. It's sort of at this psychosomatic boundary. But I've wanted to extend that into a form of imagination and that one of the examples that I actually drove from Young himself, I recently found out that he had Spanish flu in 1919, and he did a series of paintings and drawings around that, where there were these spheres in the sky. This had come from a fever dream, a sphere with a cross in it. And he ultimately incorporates this into some of his theory and his artwork. But he never tracks down, partly because he wouldn't have known it at the time, what the Spanish flu was. Well, now we know it's a, it was a spheroidal virus. Uh, and that the, the things that he's captured in there look very much like there's a kind of intuition of knowing something about what has happened. He, he's very famous for a statement that, you know, in the disenchanted world, the gods had become diseases. And I think we can flip that, that diseases can become the gods. There is a way of re-engaging with our world. It's how to listen to the even our illnesses and and learn from them. What are they talking to us about? What are they expressing to us? What are they doing to our imagination? And they do impact us. I mean, look what's happened with COVID. I mean, the, the way our whole world's been reconfigured. I don't think we're listening yet to it. I think we're we're trying to immunize ourselves away from it, which, look, I'm fully boosted and everything else. I'm not anti-vaxxing at all. But there's something about that's the behavioral response. It's not the psychological response or the spiritual response. Is there something noetic there that nature's communicating to us with? It seems almost after the conversation we've had, it seems impossible to shut that down. It just seems impossible. With everything that we're finding out, or seem to be uncovering as opportunities and the way that things interact. It just seems ridiculous that there would be a randomness and an inertness. It would almost be out of alignment with everything else. Almost like the whole kind of like, yeah, the universe is and everything is infinite. Apart from us, we're finite. 
It's <laughs> almost going, well, well, hold on, hold on. We've got, we've got a, an issue here. Something's not fitting. And, and I think that you mentioned before about the shamans and the, and the oracles or whatever within society, that they were almost the people that didn't necessarily stand and tell you what's what, but that's where you go to for your advice. But we, we look now to different guidance tools that don't have necessarily that level of sensitivity and a relationship with the subtle. We have, you know, the white coat syndrome is very powerful now when you, you're sort of in that space of, and you, you want to know the answer and someone comes and gives you the black and white and it goes in deep because you're open and vulnerable to it and it almost realizes itself. And you're, when you went to the shames, that openness, that possibility, that kind of depth of understanding, it seems to me to be something that I think even in sport now, you have sporting people are realizing that the best coaches are immensely open and subtle. Gone are the tyrant days of get down and give me 20 more, you know, get on with it. We'll stay here all night till you get this right type thing. You know, that stuff is, we're moving away into that space of people want deeper, connected, holistic, interrelated, systemic understandings that can work on all of you at once and not just, you know, grossly out of proportion hardening of this part of you, which leaves you in all kinds of trouble later on. It, it, that sounds really, really interesting. And it's, and it's awesome to hear, you know, everything you've said about the universe thinking, the the instinctive kind of stuff that comes out when the conditions meet and how do those conditions meet? Why do they meet? Why do they cooperate for us in that space? And the reverie, there's so much, I think, there that helps with the feeling of self-worth to realize that this is all for you, not for anyone else. This happens for you. That's so, so great. And, and just in terms of, it's a fairly big question, so feel free to, to bat it to one side, but what's a, a worthy life? How do you live a full life? How do you, how do you live a full moment? How's that changing? I mean, I, I would have told you that here's my CV. That would have been my full life. You know, look at all the stuff I've achieved. And now I'm kind of like, oh gosh, yeah, I've got my best bits and my DVD in my pocket, you know, is my highlights. I'm like, no, this is, it's different now. I'm wondering what it looks like for you. That's a wonderful, wonderful question. I mean, it is the quality of experience. I would say things like vibrancy, the vitality in a moment. I look at, you know, as a psychotherapist, what, what's my goal? You know, what, what is the purpose of therapy? And, you know, at one time early on, it was to fix certain kinds of problems and then it was yeah. to explore certain things. And, and now it's moved more and more into the realm of the vital and through where there's greatest animation. And, and a sense of aliveness to open to that and follow where where that leads, that it has its own logic. And, you know, what you were talking about before, that we're seduced by the algorithmic approach, that we can model it with a computer and we can, you know, sort of build a, a mathematical equation. We're still very much seduced by that as a that container and not recognizing the limitations of it. And so for me, it's, it's also getting beyond just a digital life, you know, <laughs> yeah. something about being able to experience things that, that are not in bits. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I love that. Mention that vitality for me. As soon as you said it in my head, I'm feeling like I'm covering your passion and following it wherever possible yeah. into that space and, and into that, I think space of where you mentioned the chaos and the order, that's where I feel most alive. I have to say, I have those, I've mentioned in the COVID time and I've had it many before, you have these big challenges in your life and they're cool challenges because they challenge. They're not things you choose. They come at you and they hit you hard. But there's a sense of aliveness about that experience. And it's not sustainable, but my word, there's something saying you're alive during that period. And it can actually, when things are just going, yeah, pretty good, it's not there. And I think that curiosity, that inquisitiveness, that openness, that explorational kind of approach to life, the, the, the fascination with others and the behind the narrative, you know, shedding that humility or that, that humbling journey of shedding those layers reveals aliveness. There's no doubt about it. I think that's been so interesting. And, and yeah, Dr. Joe Canberra, I have to say that's been amazing. Sorry to have moved you around all over the place, away from whatever, but it's been great to hear. And you've, you've connected lots and lots of dots in a, in a very interesting way. When you mentioned about the, the Zoom as well across the world, 
when you said a different time zone, that just momentarily freaked me out because I've spoken to people abroad all the time. But I'm suddenly kind of, for the first time, like, what you and I are experiencing is so different. And yet here we are talking as if it's nothing, as if we're in the same room. And you've got all your cues and all your things bringing in, and here's me with all mine. And yet I've blanked that for my entire, you just, you almost just get angry when, when the zoom doesn't work. You're like, Oh, what a stupid computer. Yeah. But it's, it's that really got me just even that little one, but the stuff about the dreams and the reverie, it's so f- brilliant to, we, we have a think about the schooling for our children. You kind of like, how do you foster that beauty? And you say, well, we just want them to be children for as long as they possibly can be, as long as they are. And people sort of, yeah, say, well, we like to do this and then we keep the play going. You think that's brilliant, but, championing that reverie. Imagine if someone's looking out the window and, and and the teacher sort of says, what are you dreaming about? Tell us about it. Come to the front and tell us what was going on there, you know, because that's amazing. You had that moment or, I know it's extreme, but it, it would be an interesting take. I've actually had a clinical case like that where it was a key moment with somebody where we entered a moment of silence. I, he was literally looking at, you know, sort of spaced out. I said, what's happening. First, he was a little embarrassed. And I said, Hey, I was just myself kind of spaced out a little bit. He said, well, I was out the window. And I said, so what's out the window? (laughs) And and he told me a story from his life that had years of therapy, we'd never gotten to this story. And it was a very key story about his, his adoption. Uh, And I'd had a what part of what stirred me to, to make the comment was that while I was in that moment of silence, I suddenly recalled a dream, and that's very rare for me to do in the middle of a session. And so I looked at him. That's why I I picked up on there was something happening here. And so his story was of a kind of accident he had where he had a a bit of a head injury that day and then recovered from it very quickly and had suppressed it and never told anyone. The dream image I had was of a flask from an alchemical manuscript I was working on. It had three birds, a red bird, a black bird, and a white bird at the bottom. And the the narrative was that they were at war and they had either knocked one another out or killed one another. And it matched very closely to to his (laughs) repressed memory. And so you could see that we were in the same field we were experiencing with each of our own idioms. We were inside that image of the the knocked out one at at this moment of of sort of loss and shame and then recovery. It's phenomenal. Just when you say about curiosity, and we think, yeah, yeah, curiosity, I've got it. But there's just a never-ending sort of side to that. And I kind of in my head just there picturing it, it feels like almost we're constantly bored in situations, suggesting that it's not entertaining enough. It's not offering me enough. So, oh, you know, I've got to sit here for another 10 minutes. Oh, God. But to think that there's so much here, but just to accept on a level, I'm not quite in tune with it yet, versus the idea of, oh, God, look at this. And you're like, oh, my God, look at this, this room. Do you know what this is made of? Do you know... The confusion in this, how it can stand together. As a glass of water, you just mentioned, it shouldn't even be liquid. But I think with that curiosity, even being in a dark room, there's enough for a million lifetimes, a million more. And yet we travel the world, we hit these things, and it's cool to do so. Yes, indeed. But we're just looking for that next thing. And after a while, there's only so many places you can go, (laughs) whereas actually just here is, is everything. Yeah, yeah, there's a deep enough journey inside. Again, with those large scale pictures of the universe, there were during the Tang Dynasty, about seven, eight hundred AD, and the current common era, there were a school of Buddhism in China that was a mix of Buddhism and Taoism that evolved a picture of the universe that looks very, very similar. I mean, it's just stunning that through this deep internal meditative journey, the images that are coming up look like the best of contemporary astrophysics. Therein lies that that sort of devotion to a shaman or, or, you know, or the oracle for those kind of things. Because as we look at the scientists who who are gathering more and more of the picture but doing what they can with what they've got, you go to someone who is gathering more and more of the picture and revealing it in a different way. But I think we're coming to the times of respecting both practices 
But that's, uh, I mean, just even talking to you there, I'm thinking now, you know, next time I, I meet someone, I'm thinking, you know, I always think I'm very attentive, but now another level's been locked in to be like, you know, there's more there. There's so much more there. There's everything there you could ever need in, in that one person who crosses the street in front of you. You're like, there's enough there for me to, to, you know, and uh, it's cool. That's so powerful. Wait, thank you so much for, for that. And I wish you well with that research because I'm very excited in the direction it's going. <laughs> well, thank you, Johnny. Yeah. And, uh, and I really wish you the best with your podcast. I mean, you're obviously doing a great service here. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Max Creative, The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy.